Welcome back to the Global Startup Movement. I'm your host, Andrew Berkowitz. I hope you're having an incredible week. I know that this episode is definitely going to make it better if not. Uh, so over the summer, I attended the Trade with Africa Business Summit in Bentonville, Arkansas, which is home to Walmart and Tyson's Food and a couple other companies that are very important in the broader supply chain to Africa. I hosted a panel session there that I'm super excited to release. Uh, this is much longer form content than you're typically used to hearing from me, uh, but I think there's a ton of wisdom from this panel session, which was really focused on the broader state of startups across the continent. Uh, but we dive into a lot of very interesting stories and details here. And I mean, this was really one of the best uh, Africa-focused business conferences that I've ever attended. And uh, I'm super excited for the next one, which I just found out is going to be August of next year in Chicago. So definitely be on the lookout for that. Uh, it's called the Trade with Africa Business Summit. Now, the panelists here do a really great job of introducing themselves, uh, and so I'll just leave you all in good hands with Shai Bessier, Marshall Wolf, and Akeen Sawyer. Entrepreneurship has become a global phenomenon. Uncover the stories of entrepreneurs and investors worldwide, from Sub-Saharan Africa to Silicon Valley and beyond, here on the Global Startup Movement. Now... Here's your host, Andrew Berkowitz. One of the themes today has been this new generation of young Africans that are coming up, and this generation is going to be a digitally native generation. And what that means is tech entrepreneurship is going to be a super important component to the future of Africa. And Africa needs local startup ecosystems to support their entrepreneurs. And so with that, I'd like to bring up the panel. We have Akeen, Marsha, Sayi, and Chris. And so why don't we do quick 30-second intros of who you are and what you do? Yeah, thanks, Andrew. Yeah, my name is Shea Bastir. I work for an organization like OPIC. It's an investment fund that invests in projects that have a double bottom, bottom line. 20% of what we do is investing in funds, including some of those that would then um, you know, invest in the things that catalyze in ventures. A large part of what we do as well um, in IFU is to invest 70% of what we invest in is greenfields. We're very excited about every single sector. For example, in Ghana, we've invested in aerospace which isn't something one would ordinarily expect. I also am affiliated with AfriLabs, and um, I've also been a technology entrepreneur myself and um, investor. Thank you. So you were on the same founding board for AfriLabs as, as my partner, Michael Oluwagwami, and the membership now is like 80 yeah, it's just great. So these are innovation hubs where people are, are leveraging their understanding of technology to create new businesses. And on the back of that association, for nine years I've been part of a group in Nigeria that's been building business accelerators, incubators and then now accelerators, and local investor networks and local mentoring networks. And so all of the things that the gentlemen have been talking about earlier today have come together in this ecosystem already. And thanks to the election of Buhari in 2015, the, the anti-corruption 
platform that was voted in inspired pride in the diaspora with whom I work, and they moved their families back home so that they're full-time residents in Africa again and uh, hands-on executive directorship for these, these entities that are growing rapidly. So we've got 40 people on the ground now managing three business incubators that have trained hundreds of new businesses. And on top of that, now we are raising capital for a venture fund to invest directly into the businesses that are ready to scale up. Probably enough for now. Thanks. So um, today I focus primarily on fintech. Um, and within fintech, I'm looking at how to deploy blockchain solutions across Africa to solve um, not just payment problems, but problems across identity management, supply chain, um, and also education. Um, I started out, I grew up in Nigeria, I grew up in Lagos um, through secondary school, and I moved to the U.S. for college. Um, my first job out of college was, a, was with the IMF um, in Washington, D.C. When I was growing up in Nigeria in the 80s, um, the two most important institutions were whoever was in power, um, so who, whichever military dictator was in power, and the IMF. Um, the IMF was one consistent institution you always sort of heard about um, in terms of um, what was going on with the economy. And so I was sort of really excited. First job out of college, I had a degree in economics. And it was a very eye-opening experience for me because I realized that, you know, oftentimes um, the reality is very, very different from the narrative that's often um, portrayed. Um, but post that, I spent pretty much a long career, 15 years in management consulting. And about seven years ago, I had the fortune of investing in a mobile payments company in Sierra Leone. Um, we've talked a lot about relationship um, and the importance of that. And that's sort of what got me into Sierra Leone. Because a friend of mine who I went to college with um, somehow found himself there starting a mobile payments company. And it was on the back of that relationship and trust that we had that I invested in that company. And that began my journey into looking into early stage businesses in Africa. Um, I never moved back. I still live in the United States, but the majority of my work is involved um, across Africa. So for those who sort of had the question around how can you contribute, um, I think there are ways you can have a role and play a part that doesn't necessitate actually moving. Um, so. Uh, I just spoke not too long ago. <laughs> uh, yeah, everybody, uh, yeah, Chris Fly again here, hi. Uh, Mall for Africa, we, we help U.S. and U.K. retailers sell products into Africa. Uh, something I didn't mention about me is um, I also help mentor um, quite a few individuals and people with startups on the continent. So I'm heavily involved in mentoring and planting that seed that uh, we're all very fortunate and blessed by God to be able to be on this side. So we obviously um, have our own, I feel, duty to do something back to the continent. And uh, I do that not just financially, but via mentoring, which I think is extremely important. Awesome. Really, over the past six to seven years, we've seen an enormous influx of these innovation hubs, these accelerator programs, um, and just a ton of headlines of uh, early stage startups raising capital. And so I want to open it up to the panel. I mean, what, what changes in, in culture, in the local economies, what, what have been the biggest changes that, um, that is driving this increase in startup activity? 
I can address that. The, um, and and it, some of it is because of the lack of change. And the problem is that the corporations, indigenous or endemic to Africa, have, have older people my age on the board of directors and in management positions, and they are not stepping aside to give the young people upward mobility in their careers. And so they're, the young people who are graduating from these fabulous colleges that were spoken of earlier and have amazing world-class talents, degrees, and experience are not able to, to go home and step into these higher levels of, of responsibility um, in corporations. And so they're going back to create their own businesses. Um, if I may just add to that, I, I think a lot of that is correct. As one who studied in the U.S. and moved back to Nigeria myself, been back via Europe for seven years, one of the things that changed, right, one of the things that changed was a lot of people who had been in the U.S., who had been in Asia, who had been all over the world, had gotten a feel of that startup culture. You know, the whole startup culture is almost an ideology in itself, right? It's, um, it's a very infectious idea. It's um, very, very powerful. Um, I, I mean, I'll give you a, a real-life example. Um, a couple of years ago, Mark Zuckerberg was in Lagos and walking through the streets of Yaba. And this was a billionaire in jeans and T-shirt walking down a major road in Nigeria. He cost quite a stare. A lot of people came out, reached out, and were interested in that. But long before he had come, there had been people like, um, you know, the, the guys you mentioned, Michael and um, Idris with uh, Renovation. There was um, the likes of CC Hub, you know, with Boston and quite a number of other people who had gone out and just said, okay, you know what? We don't have to do anything extraordinary. We don't have to be Silicon Valley. We're just going to create a space for people to walk out of. And we're going to tell them about startup culture. And we're going to have entrepreneurs, and sometimes we're just going to take videos of the internet and we're going to show it to these people and tell them how to grow a business or how to code. So it became as simple as just even teaching people how to code. And um, it's become, as I mentioned, a very, very infectious idea because all over the country in Nigeria and all over Africa, because what, what I do, I mean, I travel a lot for work. Um, every country that I go to, including Africa, I always look for the local hub and go there. I mean, the energy in those places, the energy in the room, the creativity, the striving, that is the Africa that if you got it to work, would be the Africa that works. Yeah, I mean, I'll add to that a little bit. I think, I think there have been some fundamental things around just connectivity that has changed um, or enabled some of the acceleration of startup scene. The mere fact that when I was growing up in Lagos, probably early teenager, there were probably less than a million phone lines in Nigeria. I mean, if you could get a, if you could get a dial tone, <laughs> half the time you were lucky. I and mean, by the time I got out of college, had my first job, cell phones were beginning to come out. It was really, really expensive. I remember my father was a banker and he got his first cell phone and it was like some ridiculous amount of money a minute. I'm like, that thing is not worth anything. It's too expensive. But what's happened is, I think as Africa has gotten more connected with the rest of the world, um, and as connectivity has become more accessible, 
the floor of information has increased, right? So I can be, in many ways, I think it's empowered individuals to get information, see what is happening across the rest of the world. And with information, with education, you can make the decision to, well, you know what? I can try and do this, right? Um, I think along with that, as Shaya kind of mentioned, I think a lot of young people took that plunge to say that we're going to create the ecosystem. When I think about the successful labs across Africa, when I think at a about our, the proliferation of labs, I believe the vast majority of them were built, developed, started by Africans who are coming back and who said, we've seen how things work in other economies. There's no reason why it shouldn't happen where we are. And I think, you know, many of them in the early days came in, took risks, right, started something, and, you know, it's proliferated. So I think it's just a combination of connectivity and then young people deciding to take and empower themselves. I'll just add my two cents. Um, so I'll look at it from a different view. So I have history with other companies, and then I was trying to start Mall for Africa. I went and I, so I live in the Bay Area, so fortunate for me, I'm, you know, Sand Hill Road, which is where pretty much all the top VCs are. Went to almost all the top VCs, and even with the track record I had, they were unwilling to invest in my idea and unwilling to invest on the continent. And they ended up looking at me saying, you know, one stupid VC actually said, do people in Africa know who Ralph Lauren is? Why would they want to buy Ralph Lauren products? And so I just did my pitch to this VC knowing that I didn't want a dime of their money and they would probably never invest and another VC was asking about giraffes. You know, that's all he was focused on. Um, like, okay, if that's what you think Africa is, then I'm so shocked you went to such an amazing school and got nothing out of it. But where I'm going with that is a few years ago, people saw Africa through a different lens. Um, I think they saw Africa as the you know, the country with kids with kwashoko, flies on their mouths, you know, poverty, people living in huts. And fortunate, fortunately, things have changed and people are seeing Africa through a different way. Um, but this was when I was raising my first round about six years ago. People didn't, didn't see it that way, but um, we are progressively getting there. One of the major things I think that have shifted is people are now more interested on in the continent and VCs are now paying a little bit more attention. And what I've told people who have tried getting VC funding from mostly the states is if you put yourself in the shoe of an investor, everybody in this room, you would never invest in exploration on Mars if you have no idea about what exploration on Mars could do, you only invest in stuff you know about and only invest and only put your money into something that you're familiar with. So why would you invest in Africa if you've never been there, if you've never sent anyone there, if you have no clue, like the guy asking me about the giraffe, total idiot, if you have no clue about the the continent, then, you know, why why invest? But I think that shift has taken place, and more and more people are visiting the continent. They saw Mark Zuckerberg go there. That helped. 
But, you know, we have to even, we as Africans need to tell our stories a little bit louder so people can hear us and not think we're, you know, laying by some river looking for water. Well, so, Marshall, I guess if, um, if that is the reality when it comes to corporates where the old guard is just, you know, holding on, I mean, how do you think we can go about activating more corporate venture capital to enter the space and then, you know, also, I mean, having pilot opportunities with corporates are, can be a huge game changer for an early stage company. Um, and so how do you, what are your thoughts on how we go about activating more corporates to be active in, in their local startup ecosystems? Thank you. Can I get back to that after I tell a little story that contextualizes this? Forty years ago, I um, entertained in my home a Nigerian for Sunday dinner, and he had just arrived in the United States, and it was his first day. That young man graduated with an engineering degree and is still in the U.S. working as an engineer for the city of Fremont in California. Twenty years ago, I was speaking at an African um, business, well, it was actually a global business conference at Wharton School of Business in, um, in Pennsylvania, and the, um, the keynote speaker for the lunch program was second in command at Credit Suisse First Boston, and he was a Nigerian who had not gone back. But the room was full of Nigerians who were graduating from Wharton School of Business, and they were all talking about their interviews with investment banking uh, firms and what kind of jobs they were looking for on Wall Street. And that gentleman got up and spoke at his keynote address. His message was, I never went back, but you go back. That was his directive. And over the past 20 years, that's what I've seen develop. So what happened, for example, things that have happened, there have been the networks that have grown of African diaspora networks, like where I met Toyin a couple years ago. Um, and she was just so amazed that such a thing existed. But they, 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 I started getting involved with them probably 15 years ago. And um, the Kenyans were networking, and it was just for this purpose, is the entrepreneurship. They all had ideas about businesses they'd like to launch, and they would pitch those, but they had no idea how to make that a reality. So they needed the mentoring and the, the venture capital. But um, um, what, if you, you look at Silicon Valley as a case study of cultures that have gone through the same, sta- the same stages, the Indians and the Chinese um, came to, to top universities and engineering schools primarily given the Silicon Valley context. And then um, they, when they graduated, they were asked to be part of the uh, venture teams that then grew, they were venture capital backed by the Sandhill uh, people, investors, and then they grew the businesses and then um, became profitable and then exited those businesses, usually to an IPO back in those days. And so they're sitting there with this capital that, from a venture that had been successful, and, and they looked at each other and they thought, we'll just go home and do the same thing. It'll cost less to hire people and they've got big markets and our overhead will be lower and lo and behold the venture capital followed them. Usually it was from their own diaspora, their own their own indigenous investors backed them when they came home. And now what has happened over these years is the same thing is happening with African diaspora. In, 2000, in 2004, well, 2008 when the global meltdown happened Nigerians looked at each other and thought, well, I lost my job here, but 
I can, you know, Wall Street just kind of, um, they, but I could go back to, to Africa and do something really exciting, really impactful and um, without much competition. And so that was one thing that happened. Another was that because the currency value became so low relative to the strength of the dollar, it cost a whole lot more for for Nigerians to send their youth to away to top colleges. So they, they stayed home and realized, wow, this, I can get a pretty good education here. And if I want to go to graduate school, I can do that. So all of these things have worked together to create more of a, um, a, a tipping point where the, um, the caliber of people and the number of people and the networks of the people are all working together so that the, the, uh, some of the, the astute Africans are launching their own businesses and others, their friends, are launching venture capital funds so that they can invest in their friends. And the networks that have um, that confirm high level of integrity, such as the Harambian Entrepreneurs Alliance, um, are, are looked to as as vetting agencies for potential venture capital investments, because those networks are are geared toward um, Africans encouraging each other to be all they can be, and to be the best they can be, and to work together to help each other achieve successes. And then they all all that will raise all ships instead of the competitive infighting and, and hurting of each other. It's a, it's a mutual lifting up. So all of these things are coming together simultaneously. So yes, I'm, I'm trying to raise a venture capital fund and we're trying to figure out how to do it for this niche. Um, and it's, it's taking a lot of work and a lot of no's and a lot of discouragement. And you realize that it really is the fact that most people haven't spent 40 years getting to know Africans like I have. And so how do I leapfrog over that? How do, how do you build trust fast enough to, to, and you're exactly right. Travel is a big part of it. We're going to have to have investor trips. Um, our, our incubator in Lagos hosted a group that came in. It was, um, uh, uh, anyway, that came in from all over. Botswana, uh, um, Australia, Switzerland, that sort of thing. And then our, uh, we had our top people pitch to them. And... Um, and now, I mean, but it's just, you know, it's a process that we're all going through. But it, it, right now, there are a lot of, of absolutely amazing diaspora, African, well, I say diaspora, but they're, they're going back and forth between the continent and Europe, between the U.S. and, and, uh, and the continent. And they, um, they are trying to raise capital, but for them, $1 million or maybe the most $5 million is about all that they're able to, to get this, this year, the, the last two years this has been going on. But they will show that what they can do. In our case, um, our pilot portfolio, um, we invested 14 times into 10 companies, and half those companies aren't doing so well, half are doing just fine, and two are really stellar growth things that have created over 1,000 jobs and have given us a 10x, re not return, but appreciation value on our investment. In other words, so like $5,000 here up to maybe $20,000 there, it's been like $200,000 is now worth $2 million. And some of the names are well known to, to those of you who track these things. Undella and Flutterwave are two, are two big winners. And they've still got a long way to go. So they've already attracted over $100 million in follow-on private sector capital. None of this is charity. None of it's donations. Yes, the profits are going 
going back into building the company, as all good growth companies do at this stage. It, there are some very exciting stories, and we are finally getting our, our unicorn stories, so that there, that stimulates more investment as well. Can I pick it up from the point about the unicorns? And because that also signals a huge other dimension to this thing, right? There's um, um, to the whole startup culture and technology, all the growth that there is in investment into technology. Nigeria now has this company called Interswitch, which everybody thinks might be the first billion-dollar valuation Nigerian company. And there's a people are waiting and watching for that to happen. Interswitch didn't come out of any of the hubs. There are many other technology companies that have become, in fact, the biggest didn't come from the hubs. One of the things that actually drove technology early on in the early 90s in Nigeria, um, long before the telecoms boom came, was the fact that the banks, um, you know, there was um, explosive growth in the banks. Um, there was a bit of liberalization in the banking sector, and the banks needed software and um, generally couldn't get proper support from IBMs and the top companies. And so a lot of people started building that software, and that's where you saw the likes of JKK, um, the likes of so many of those other companies, and that's where everything came out of. So the point I'm making is a lot of it comes from that return, from that global startup culture, but a lot of it is also African. A lot of it is also being driven by local need, um, by the fact that people are genuinely entrepreneurial and looking for tools that help them to enable business, whatever it is they're trying to do. And then came the telecom story. I mean, so if you take a country like Nigeria, but that's also true for, true for South Africa. It's also true for Ghana. It's also true for Kenya. It's also true for all of the major African economies. What has been happening is that telecoms and TMT is one of the biggest sources of FDI into those countries. I mean, it's billions of dollars of investments every year just to keep, just to maintain your network um, and then to keep expanding it and keep, and that level of growth creates a huge ecosystem of people who are um, into software, who are into software testing, who are into um, systems engineering and all kinds of things. And all of that is another powerful demonstration story that allows people to see that you can um, just take what seems like putting 20 people in a room, giving them computers, and achieving extraordinary growth and value, um, which is a very, very important point to make because when people have thought about Africa um, and all of the African countries, and one of the things generally I have a problem with the word Africa, um, it's 54 countries, it's um, so many different groupings and um, East Africa is very different from North Africa and so on and so forth. But this is true about all of Africa, which is that we think about it in extra extractive terms. Oil, mining, agriculture, in natural resource terms. Very few people think about it in terms of creating value, um, you know, from higher or more complexity activities. And the fact that all of this is starting to happen, um, I think really all goes well. Um, and then the question you'd asked about 
was it a question about getting corporate funding or was it a question about VCs? It was a question of activating more corporates to one, you know, create venture arms, but also to be more open-minded and more active in entering into pilot contracts with, with local companies, oh, okay. local startups. So that's beyond my pay grade. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, so, you know, one, and, and, and this is a theme that we hear over and over again, you know, Africa is, uh, it's not a country, it's a set of diverse, um, diverse countries with different cultures, and that market fragmentation actually presents somewhat of a challenge to entrepreneurs. Um, it's the same thing in Europe, it's the same thing in Southeast Asia, where in the US or China, you start a company and you have this one large homogenous market that you can attack. Whereas, you know, in Africa, you win a market that's not necessarily big enough to go from uh, a seed round to a larger growth round. So Chris, I would love to hear from you, because um, you took your, your company from a, a small startup in Nigeria to uh, a scale up across 15 different countries in Africa. So Going through that experience, what do you see as uh, some of the biggest challenges in, you know, we, we see all these headlines of seed rounds, but getting to that Series A, Series B round, what are some of the biggest challenges you think African startups face with that, that hitting that growth stage? That's a good question. Um, I think it really goes back to the to the VC and trying to find a VC that has actually worked on the continent and understands the continent because there will be challenges. Um, with Africa, you don't have plan A and plan B. You have plan A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, G. <laughs> you know, um, and you probably, by the time you're really out there, you'll probably be doing stuff that you didn't even know. I mean, I told you about gummy bears. I mean, I can't believe I'm shipping gummy bears. What the heck, you know? That's not why I started this company, to ship gummy bears. I didn't do that. <laughs> but that's what I'm shipping. I'm shipping gummy bears. I'm shipping gummy bears. I'm shipping toilet paper. I'm like, what the hell, you know? But hey, that's what I want. That's what we ship, you know? Um, so you have to have all of these. I think you have to have all of these plans in place. Um, you have to have a VC that has worked on the continent. Our VC is the same VC as Intuswitch, um, which is a company called Helios. Um, two Nigerian guys started uh, an African fund, a 3.8 billion um, African fund. Um, they're focused on Africa. They understand the continent. They know that you do have to go through the entire alphabet to figure out what you're, and you're going to end up doing. Um, so I do think finding the right VC that understands that the market's challenging, there are going to be dips and turns, you know, ups and downs, that's that's the biggest challenge. It's, it's not really the idea or the, or the people and the tenacity that people have. I think it's more of the VC world trying to understand more about the continent and what the continent has to offer and people to know that it's definitely not going to be easy. Um, going back to your previous question, there is um, a platform called Geeks on a Plane. I'm not sure if anybody in here has heard of it, but Geeks on a Plane is an amazing way for entrepreneurs, um, well not entrepreneurs, investors, so if there are any investors in the room, um, sign up for Geeks on the Plane because it's investors, they put you on an airplane or they schedule your flights, you go from country to country to country to country, meeting with entrepreneurs with brilliant ideas, they pitch to you, you can, you can fund them or you can find out more information about them, but another thing that that's doing is it's opening up the continent and getting investors interested in 
the continent and interested in people and their ideas locally instead of this, you know, fearful mindset of, oh, you know, Africa doesn't, Africa cannot support my business and all that, blah, blah, blah. So this is a, a panel on uh, startups innovation. So I would be uh, remiss if I didn't bring up the B word. Um, and so, Akin, how can blockchain uh, in- impact the way money and, and value moves around Africa? Um, and I mean, what, what are your thoughts on, on, the, on the practical use cases um, for, uh, for African markets? So I'll give a little bit of context. So, I mean, I, I mentioned seven years ago I invested in a mobile payments company in Sierra Leone. And it was, in many ways, you know, shortly after starting the company, we were thinking about, when you think about payments, you look for volume. Right? And if you look at Sierra Leone as a country, it was post-conflict, um, very, very small consumer market, and the majority of volume in the system was absorbed by the electric company, but mostly development agencies that were spending money into the country. And we learned very, very quickly that you know, development agencies could bring money into the country and line it at a bank, but then how do I get that pot of money to 10,000 individuals in a country where you have we well, had 24 bank branches across the whole country. There was no infrastructure, right? And so, you know, we decided to essentially build a payment network, an agent network to facilitate um, not just payments for DFIs, but also an easy and convenient way for individuals to make payments. Now, in order to do that successfully, we had to do everything from creating individual identities for users because if you don't have an identity, then how do I know who's getting paid, who's being tracked? Um, so even though the country only had about a 30% mobile penetration rate and literacy levels, the country adults, the literacy level for, for adults is all about 38%. So the majority of the country doesn't have phones and is illiterate. And that's our customer base, right? So in many ways, we had to basically design a system where we were our own identity platform, um, everyone had a SIM card, even though they, don't have, they didn't have a phone, because we, t- we tied identities to SIM cards. So literally, when we launched, individuals would show up at an agent with a SIM card. And that SIM card gets inserted into an agent's phone. He does a transaction, and voila, they paid for something. Um, but, in, but the other thing we also realized very quickly was that in many countries, particularly at the bottom of the pyramid, if you look across sub-Saharan Africa, about half of the income for many families comes from abroad, remittances. And when we looked at a remittance market, for example, look at Nigeria. Nigeria gets, in my view, about $40 billion a year in remittances. And the World Bank figure says about $22 billion. But there's a lot of, there are a lot of informal ways that money comes in that can't really be tracked by financial systems. Um, so it's somewhere between 20 and $40 billion. Right? And Sub-Saharan Africa is still the most expensive um, corridor in the world for remittances. Right? So about 10% of all the money that goes in is absorbed by middlemen in fees, which from a technical standpoint is pretty ridiculous because you have platforms today that can remit money in seconds for you know, almost nothing. Right? So the problem is something else. Right? And so for me, you know, blockchain was sort of a solution. It's almost like it's a solution that showed up that we wish we had 10 years ago because it would have made it easy to solve all the problems we had to solve in establishing a mobile payments company, right? And so in many ways, when you look at the challenge across Africa, 
um, it starts with very, very fundamental things that I think people always think about. You know, everyone in America has a form of identity that's government-issued, right? A driver's license, a social security number. You have something that identifies you across the system, across the financial system, across your behavior and activity. You know, most Africans don't have that. And those that do have dumb IDs, right? They, they don't really, there's no digital back end that is able to travel. So, be, so if, if, if I can't document my information, if I can't prove who I am, it's pretty hard to transact, right? The cost of transactions goes up exponentially. So I think fundamentally blockchain can solve some of those issues around identity, around um, being able to create digital systems that allows information to move back and forth that people have visibility into. So we talked about supply chains in some of the previous panels. It's important to know that I can track an identity, I can track payments, I can track legal documents in a system that cannot be manipulated. Because oftentimes when you talk to people about Africa, oftentimes questions come around, well, how do I know I can trust the information? Right? Who's the information coming from? Right? And I think we need databases, we need systems that we can you know, say, look, you know, the information is secure, the information is accurate, and the information cannot be manipulated. And that means digitizing systems. Right? I think that becomes just the fundamental base through which you can now build payment systems. Right? You can interconnect countries. Right? So there's no use having a free trade agreement if I can't trade. If I can't get your currency to, trans to, to, to transfer, if I cannot translate Naira to um, CFA easily, if it's too expensive, how am I going to trade? Right? So you need systems that can allow you to digitally take advantage of digital platforms to make it easier to transact, easier to identify yourself, and to create visibility into information systems. So, Marsha, with, uh, with this new fund you're raising, I would be curious to hear what are, what are some of the, the common objections or hesitations that, that you're, you're, you're seeing from LPs um, in, in the meetings that you're having? Okay, thank you. Can I, can I answer your last question? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I the no. last <laughs> okay, so you asked about how corporates are getting involved in helping with VC. And um, let, let me just give, you know, the background. Um, in 1997, I helped with a corporate joint venture between um, a U.S. extractive company and, um, and Sucor in South Africa. As part of that joint venture, 10% of all of the top-line revenues that we, um, that we generated were put aside into an upstream training trust. And that goes. That went largely into bursaries to uh, to provide scholarships for the labor pool that would then support the uh, industry that we were focused on. And I just thought that was brilliant. So that was one way to everybody wins, right? Um, fast forward now, twenty some years. <laughs> of course, MTN is the big telecom, and you see. Uh, their distribution on every, every corner. And all these years I've looked at Coca-Cola and thought, why can't people leverage that distribution network and just add one more product, you know? And MTN, fortunately, has opened their distribution centers to, or uh, out outlets uh, to be able to do that. And um, one of these companies that is a solar panel connected to, you know, charge up your, your phone, Phoenix, 
um, won a, a, a partnership agreement with them. And um, so they were able to immediately ramp up um, and, you know, raise $20 million and, and distribute everywhere and, and leverage the, the, the distribution network that MTN already had to, uh, to get these panels out there. And, of course, there again, it's a win-win situation because people use their phones more because they don't run out of batteries. They don't have to keep going and, and uh, getting them recharged. So um, those are some of the ways that I've seen. Uh, then further, Orange Ventures uh, just launched their own uh, venture capital fund last year, set up an office in Cote d'Ivoire. And um, I talked to them before they, they set it up, and I said, well, um, that, would you invest in, in our fund? And they said, no, but we want your deal flow, which is a common theme that I'm getting. Um, <laughs> in other words, we've got to figure out a way to invest in the startups and get them to the Series B and C level before the, the corporate um, VCs will come in. Um, but that's still, that still gives my investors hope of an exit in a fairly short time period. So I'll go with that. Safaricom is also a, a great generator of ventures for VCs to invest in, and they've backed a fund similar to ours in East Africa. And I saw that they also opened up an M-Pesa uh, API to, to the public as well. Uh, yes, so. that's right. That's right. Explain that a little more. But just to top it off, VMware, um, does anybody know what VMware is or does? All right. Uh, I didn't. When, when I, I got off the, the podium at the Africa Diaspora Network in January in Silicon Valley, and this guy comes up. He's from Nigeria, and he hands me his card. I, he said, I'm from VMware. And I'm thinking, Oh boy, <laughs> and um, he said he said we we do the infrastructure for cloud computing. I thought, oh, okay, got it. And he said that he'd been given basically a blank check by his corporate um, leadership to train African tech technology people in how to, in how to build cloud infrastructure. And I said, well, that's wonderful. And he said. But I've been here so long, I don't know how to connect with African techies. Can you help me? And I'm thinking, yeah, Afrolabs. <laughs> so I introduced him to Anna, and she immediately, you know, jumped on that, and he jumped on that. And so we're going to have this network that you set up, thankfully, leveraging corporate, um, corporate venture in sort of, it's, it's like, what would that be? It's sort of a foundation building. So then you're going to have an entire generation that is going to be capable of the cloud computing infrastructure serving, serving that need for Africa. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what was your question? <laughs> <laughs> well, so one thing that came to mind while, um, while you're giving that answer, we, I've heard challenges on both sides of entrepreneurs trying to find capital, but VCs trying to find quality deal flow, right? So I'll kind of open that up to the panel. I mean, right now, which do you think is a bigger challenge in, in the Africa tech ecosystems? Is it uh, entrepreneurs trying to find that seed Series A round, or is it VCs trying to find high-quality deal flow for their funds? I think there's a more fundamental problem than that. I think part of the problem is Africans are looking to the wrong pools of money. So for me, I think what would be more useful to do is to galvanize local high net worth individuals, corporates, look for local money, and educate them as to 
what global startup investing looks like, right? So there are associations like you know, Nigeria, the Lagos Angel Network, the African Business Angel Network, they're spending a lot of time trying to galvanize local money. But to your question too, I think another really untapped pool is the diaspora. I mean, I just talked about $40 billion moving to Nigeria this year. That's a lot of money. And it's not all going to paying for school fees or just to keep the lights on. It's going into investments, right? And, you know, after um, the Africa Diaspora Network in 2016, I ran a, a small survey amongst just my network and I asked about 50 people, um, would you invest in Africa? If yes, how much are you willing to invest annually? And from responses from 50 people just within a short survey, I had at least half a million dollars that said, I want to invest in early stage tech in Africa. And these are Africans who understand and understand those markets. So there's less of an education gap you have to go through. I think the challenge is it's quite disaggregated, and there needs to be some organization and some structure around how you pool those funds to invest back home. And the other thing I also realized, too, is people are also emotional investors, right? It's not always just about a return. It's I have an affinity for where I come from, and I want to do something. I'm not going to move back. Not everyone is going to move back, right? But the people that have income, have assets, and want to invest. And I think primarily that's more important because if you can convince local money to invest, if you convince the diaspora to invest, then invariably you'll get their friends, right? You'll get people that say, um, it's like when you go into a new country for the first time and you want to figure out where you want to eat, I look to where the locals are eating because that to me is an authentic experience, right? And if I'm a foreigner wanting to invest in Africa, the first thing I'll probably think about is, well, who are the Africans I know? Are they investing? What are they investing in? And if I don't see enough of local or local smart money investing, oftentimes it's like, well, I don't necessarily want to be the dumb money. And if they're not investing, why should I? So I think it's really more important to figure out ways we can better organize and galvanize our own sources of funding, however small. And even for a lot of your early stage companies, I'm sure you've invested in, a lot of the early money was local money, right? It was local money saying, I understand that problem intimately. Um, I understand the market. I'm willing to take that risk because I have a lot of information that de-risks it. And then you can kind of build a pipeline that way. So I think there's a lot of lower hanging fruit. And I think the other point, too, I wanted to make around the wrong source of money is I've seen many cases across Africa where um, foreign money is investing in things that will not work in Africa because they're not solving local African problems. Right, And oftentimes it doesn't really make sense to me because you're losing in two ways. You're losing because you're deploying capital in the wrong things, but on top of that, you're taking African talent to solve problems that don't need solving. Right? So talent is focused on the wrong things. And I see a few ecosystems across Africa where it's dominated by foreign money that's not solving African problems and really isn't going to build things to scale. So there's this perversion in the system that's beginning to happen in some areas. And I think there needs to be sort of, right, <laughs> moving away from that and getting more alignment across the whole chain of what are we solving, where's the money coming from, and is there philosophical alignment around an intimate understanding of that problem that you're trying to back? So, Shai, you were kind of okay, sh yeah. shaking your head on that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'll... Um, <laughs> 
um, I'll start off where I can left off, which is um, I had a very similar experience on this trip. Um, I've, on, on this trip to the U.S., I've been here about 10 days, and I was at a funeral, and um, at some point I brought up something I was investing in, and there and then I had four people signing up to invest in it. So there's a, quite a huge interest in people in the diaspora tr trying to invest b um, back in Africa and in um, I'll just talk about why it's so difficult to raise capital. And again, I'll start out where I came left off. Um, if you can mobilize local capital, why it's so important um, is that it actually gives a lot of credibility to the ecosystem. And it also ensures against the problem of investing in the wrong things. And I'll illustrate what I mean. What has happened in a lot of the hubs um, a lot of the hubs that I see in, you know, across AfriLabs, across Africa, a lot of them, the only money they can get, the only funding they can get is funding from donor agencies, essentially. And um, what, has that, what that has created is a lot of them have now focused in on um, things like social innovation, um, which is very, very valuable and very important, right? But, um, and maybe even more important than the economic stuff, right? But there isn't enough of a focus on solving the hardcore technology problems, the venture problems um, that the continent needs to solve. And, and it's more of a problem when the biggest hubs are the ones focused on that. Because that then becomes a pattern for the whole ecosystem. And the ecosystem starts to be built around a donor agenda. The donor agenda is very, very important. It cannot be done away with. But it's external, right? It's, um, and basically, it's top-down. It's not from the bottom up um, and the, from the billion bottoms up. Um, so investing in, investing in VC funds is very, very difficult. As Chris said, in Africa, you don't have plan A or B, right? Actually, it's that you're somebody's plan Z. Um, and so what, what that means as someone who invests in, in funds, right, in vehicles that are raising capital and structuring to invest all over Africa, um, we encounter a lot of VC funds. And the real challenge we have is that a lot of the people, I mean, I say to a certain extent that I understand the space, but a lot of people do not understand the space. They just simply do not. They're used to, to um, and another problem is that a lot of, the organizations that actually have the capital and can invest it are organizations like IFU who are development finance institutions. Um, and so what experience do we have? What experience do DFIs have? They have experience investing in power plants, in roads, in agribusiness, in hard things. They have no idea about how to even value an asset. So you come to them with a proposition, um, we're stuck for the next three months discussing how are we going to value this. And so that's one big problem. And so it goes back to that point about local capital and local pools of capital. One thing, one tragedy that is happening, and maybe tragedy is a hard word, but something that is going very wrong in Africa is that pension funds have a lot of money, a whole lot of money, probably hundreds of billions of dollars. And if structured properly and looked at on a portfolio perspective, you could probably raise a couple of billions of dollars to invest in VC funds to go after that VC technology space. But they don't understand it either. 
they don't understand it either. So it then goes back to you know that early stage money, right? That, that initial group of people who go back, the initial group of people who just take those risks. Um, it's going to be very important to have those unicorns who list as I, IPOs, right? That the general public can see that this was created from a startup environment and then became this huge corporate behemoth that people can relate with. Um, so it's going to take time. Um, but I, I, I'm going to lean towards saying, going back to your question, which is I would lean towards saying the difficulty is quality startups. It always is. There's more than excess capital. There's extraordinary levels of capital. Um, I've recently discovered loads of um, VC funds in Asia um, from recent trips to Asia who are just looking at it and thinking, that looks very interesting, but we don't have the slightest clue. How do we even get there, right? Um, and unlike the U.S. or the U.K. or Europe where, um, you know, Rwandans and Nigerians and Kenyans have been to, to study and gone back, um, that's not necessarily the case in Asia, right? And um, so that nexus isn't there. That link back isn't necessarily there. So, I mean, overall, I think it's a growth story. It will continue to be a growth story. Um, the, there's going to be a lot of need to get policy to understand what needs to happen domestically to mobilize that domestic capital and get it into risky things. One of the major, major, major issues you have in Africa, it's not just for the VC space, it's that a lot of businesses who are starting out in Africa are looking to banks to raise money. And um, anybody who's been a banker here or who's ever approached a bank for a loan to raise, to start a business knows that's not where you go to raise money. It's just no way. But that's the only organized pool of capital that there is, right, in Africa. And so there's a lot of work to do also in building up the financial ecosystem and having all that innovation in it and getting the policy to move, start moving some of that pension money because the pension money, I'm looking at it there, yes, it's money that should be safe, but the truth of the matter is if the average age in Africa is 30 years old, right, or the median age or something like that is 30 years old, um, or even less in some countries, that means the, the pension money is not going to be touched for 30, 35 years. You can make riskier investments on balance, and in any case, a 1% or 0.1% portfolio allocation to VCs, to proper VCs, not just for the digital space, but also for the rest of the economy, is going to go a long way, and it's going to catalyze a lot. I, I mean, we all know that's how it's done everywhere else, right? That's what moves it. Yep. And so I think that's all we have time for, but I mean, I hope we inspired you all to maybe think about, you know, even a, a five, ten, fifteen thousand $15,000 angel check could be a game changer for, for an early stage company in Africa. Um, but let's, uh, let's give it up for the panel. Thanks for listening. Be sure to add Andrew on Snapchat at andberk, that's A-N-D-B-E-R-K, to see firsthand a day in the life of an entrepreneur in cities all around the world. 